Some sort of bankruptcy, I don't really understand these things, but uh, some sort of bankruptcy <laughs> judge has approved the sale, quite, and I'm going to put finger quotes around the word sale, uh, of Eclipse to, uh, to somebody. Can one of you guys explain this to me? What the heck is... So the Eclipse, of course, is the, lights, the light, very light jet it's, manufacturer, the land... Right. Break, you know, the groundbreaking um, um, company that sort of invented the uh, the category. It broke so much ground, it broke. Yeah, and it went broke, breaking it, ground. They Boy, how's hard, that for a lot of breaking up? They ultimately had a hard time getting this thing finished and 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 really out the door, and uh, ultimately had to declare bankruptcy. And then that's where it gets complicated. That uh, part of the bankruptcy involved this, to me, anyways, bizarre. Uh, a deal where they were going to sell the assets of the company, and some, so wh- what's the story here? Who who ends up with Eclipse? The guy that's been running Eclipse, Roll Peeper. And is this uh, good? Is this and, fair? Is he the right guy? Oh man, those are questions I'm not prepared to answer. I, I see. mean, I and really they're don't know. kind of irrelevant. Be- because yeah. it doesn't really matter because there's there's nobody else who wants it right now. Well, that's true. They they did apparently throw it open for other bids and nobody bid. Right? It wasn't like nobody bid enough. Nobody bid at all. Right? No, well, yeah. Uh, Roll Peeper, who is the the head of a of a company called Itirk Aviation. Uh, it's an affiliate. Uh, Eclipse. He started a company called Eclipse Jet as an affiliate of Eartic Aviation, uh, which Eartic Aviation is Eclipse's largest shareholder, uh, and it's the outfit in Europe. That's where it's based. It's behind starting this production operation in Russia, where they were supposed to assemble components from Eclipse here in the United States. So, Peepers company in Europe started a new independent affiliate called Eclipse Jet Aviation International Inc. And that entity placed a bid of $28 million in cash plus promissory notes and equity for the assets of Eclipse Aviation to the tune of about, I think it was 15% for secured debtors. Right. But but see what I really want to know is so what what is this what how now what becomes of, of the Eclipse Jet program that's what I want to know is somebody that's still going to be making these things 
That's well, a very good question, I, and, and no I, one really knows the answer to it. I, I got another yeah. question though. Yeah. There's there's what two hundred uh, some odd uh, copies of the Eclipse five hundred out there. Right. Um, by the uh, airplane flight manual as a limitation, in other words, a legally binding uh, uh, document and a legally binding um, uh, limitation. Um, the airplane <clears throat> has to go back to a an Eclipse service center for just about everything. Okay, if Eclipse does fail, or if those service centers fail, who does maintenance on these aircraft, and yeah. how can they continue to fly? Yeah, and and uh, I don't have an answer to that. Maybe some other people do. Maybe some of our listeners do. Um, but it's kind of a head scratcher for for a number of people who are watching this. Um, I, I think, though, to, to to speculate, and it's pure speculation. Um, I think a lot of the Eclipse operation is going to end up overseas. Well, um, yeah, that seems like it goes without saying, given the situation. Well, it, yeah, that, that that's that's the the roots of a lot of fear around Albuquerque, New Mexico, mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Is that a lot of it's going to go overseas, uh, and. I question just how much of a savings that that's going to be for the company uh, long term to have to uh, shut down, move all the, the hardware and and uh, what they built in-house, that is. Uh, because there's a real issue here of whether some of these creditors, uh, part suppliers, are going to want to continue to be part suppliers to the new company given what's happened to them uh, from the old company, which would put yeah. you know any outfit in Europe in the position of having to build more of the airplane than Eclipse Aviation was building in Albuquerque. Well, maybe I didn't, wasn't paying enough attention. Who, who bought the Eclipse assets, an individual or this E-Turk, e- whatever it is? A, an affiliate of, of E-Turk. Oh, that he created specially. E- right. Ah, okay, all right, yeah. He, he so, created a separate entity called... Eclipse Jet Aviation International. So we can't take any comfort from the idea that Eclipse is now owned by a deep pocket company that will be more stable than the first version. I, I think that remains to be seen. Yeah, how okay. deep okay. pocket, how stable. Also. Oh, well. Yeah. If oh, they well. were that deep and yeah. that stable, uh, they might have uh, avoided going through all this by putting 28 more million and what they're promising in this bankruptcy into keeping the company going and uh, well, tried to bail themselves out of it. Except it. that for all the money that Vern Rayburn, the founder of Eclipse, bragged that he'd raised the greatest mm-hmm. you know, equity infusion in investors ever, the company still wound up in excess of a billion in, uh, in uh, liabilities. Yeah. Keep in I, mind also that, uh, you know, bankruptcy, if you can come out of uh, chapter 11 bankruptcy which is the 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 idea here yeah. um bank th- this kind of bankruptcy proceeding um gives you a clean slate if you can come out of but but wait a minute that's uh, not it, the way well, they're doing it, it, this one right well well yeah they're, they are this is chapter, chapter 11 363 of chapter 11 yeah yeah but the now, original and, eclipse and, and airplane company no longer owns anything Exactly, and and uh, um, 
whether those liabilities transfer to the new owner is kind of irrelevant because they're still in Chapter 11. Right. And that, in my understanding of Chapter 11, and I'm by no means an attorney, much less a bankruptcy attorney, is that that allows, um, through the court, uh, to settle for, for fractions of a dollar on what you owe. Right. Whether you owe suppliers uh, for avionics and for engines, or whether you owe... Um, owners for unmet uh, upgrades or whether you owe deposit and and, uh, serial number holders for uh, unmanufactured aircraft. So um, what will come out of all this is anybody's guess. I would would speculate, and it's only speculation, that E-Turk and and, uh, uh, Eclipse Jet Aviation International and and, uh, all the other little dogs and cats at play here uh, want to try to get the type certificate, the tooling, um, the the design, the engineering, and the market uh, for the Eclipse jet for uh, 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 you know pennies on the dollar. Well, yeah, and that's and, exactly and that's what, what they've done. That's what they're yeah, that's what it's exactly what they're done. What they've done. Yeah. What happens after that is anybody's guess. Whether right. they'll have the juice to to maintain the. The brand and and reinvigorate it and keep and, and start making aircraft again is is what you're really asking and no one knows. Yeah, and if you add, I, I, if I perceive, you yeah. yeah, I was going to say if you total up the 28 million in cash, plus what would have been some right. reports on the value of the promissory notes and the equity share that Eclipse Jet Aviation International is promising here. Uh, the new owners are essentially getting all the assets of the company, and that is the tooling, the intellectual right. property, and the type certificate for about twenty cents on the dollar of what their the old company's liabilities were. Yeah. Well, I suspect of the liabilities. That, yeah, yeah. I, I suspect and, that and, as. Uh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say. I mean, I, I, it, it's a pretty slick deal if they can pull it off. Uh, yeah. And you know, on one level. Um, they, some might think that you know they're looking like opportunists. On the other, on another level, though, um, they're just uh, uh, take you know I won't say taking advantage, but they're they're stepping in and and uh, picking up the pieces of something that kind of fell on the floor and shattered. So yeah, and, and, and that twenty cents on the dollar that they're putting in, ostensibly in this bid, that's been accepted. Uh, isn't the, the in the end of the money they're going to be spending here, not by a long shot. Right. The new Eclipse, you mean? Yes, I right. agree. Right. The new Eclipse Jet Aviation International Inc. is going to be spending millions and millions more to get this thing resurrected, and you know it wouldn't be unheard of for some of its suppliers to put the the company on a uh, cash before shipment basis. Cash only basis. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, that means that you know there's going to be somebody yeah. wire money to somewhere before I- engines, for example, come out of uh, Pratt and Whitney Canada. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that I think probably I think that it's it's accurate to say that as as business analysts, the three of us probably make pretty good airplane pilots. Um, <laughs> and, well, uh, that's one way to put it. And that we should probably leave this. The way we've mangled it for now, we'll probably hear from I, listeners who I, really I understand how this works. I would love to say that this is the first bankruptcy 
that I've ever covered or had to follow yeah. uh, in the aviation business, but it is yeah, far yeah, from the first one. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. Anyways. Hey, welcome, folks, to episode 118 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the General Aviation oh, I feel Podcast. So old. I know. We're recording this episode on, uh, what is it? It's Friday evening, January 23rd, 2009. And uh, let me say hi to the gang here in the virtual hangar. One of those voices out there is Jeb Burnside, who's talking to us from Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. How you doing? I'm spiffy, Jack. How about you? <laughs> I'm doing real well, too, actually. Uh, I am oddly enough. Well, I'll talk about where I am. Uh, did you move yeah. your airplane yet? Had My your- airplane is about 60, 75 feet away from me. Uh, as I sit, does that give uh, you like a nice warm into, feeling? Huh? Does it? it? It's 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 an incredibly warm feeling. It's it's nice and cozy in its hangar, uh, sitting there. You know, it's got a, there's a bunch of junk in there, but it's the only airplane in the hangar, and it's there's plenty of space. And uh, uh, I'm a happy camper, and and it's a happy camper. I'm actually gonna gonna get out and fly one evening this weekend, and, and uh, familiarize myself a little bit more with this airport. Um, it it uh, how's it different for you? Got it in here, you know. Well, it's short for one. Yeah. Um, um, you know, I'm, I'm used to you know three thousand, thirty five hundred feet minimum. Um, but this I, I've, is, seen uh, you, I've seen you. I've seen you do twenty five hundred yeah. with a display threshold of three hundred uh, at much higher uh-huh. elevation. So I've got confidence. With a full you're load. Fine. With a. W- yeah, yeah, yeah. With with a full load and, and a hot day, yeah, you you've seen that, and and I'm I'm not too stressed about it, but uh, uh, it's it's to do it right, and you know my neighbors are watching, kind of thing, and, and all this, so. Um, um, I, the neighbors I'm are not watching. About it. It's yeah, just a that's of, the uh, that's the real factor, it. right? The neighbors are watching. It's like well, it's getting getting familiar with the areas, the part yeah, that I'd yeah, be real there. hot with, you know, and starting to pick out those visual cues <laughs> on where you start to turn uh-huh, and, uh-huh. and the so hot so forth. The hotshot aviation journalist just moved in the neighborhood. Let's keep an eye on him. We want to see whether he knows how to fly <laughs> that thing. All right, right, right. Can this guy fly, or that's is right. he just all hot air? <laughs> That's right. So yeah, there's, there's. Uh, oh, bless you, Jeb. Oh, and man. speaking, and speaking of hot air, the other voice <laughs> out there. You're going to cause me to not collaborate on this. Is our dear we, friend? We did not collaborate on this before. So. Is our dear friend Dave Higdon, who's talking to us from Wichita, Kansas? Hi, David. How you doing? Well, I'm about to balloon up after that remark. But, you know. <laughs> so how's it doing out there? So you know, and I should. Well, well, let me say, let me use myself, and then and then we'll talk about this a little bit. I'm Jack Hodgson. Yeah. I'm talking to you from uh, beautiful Dover, New Hampshire. Now, listeners who pay attention to these kinds of things may note that we had originally planned to be doing an episode from uh, somewhere in the vicinity of Sebring, Florida, this week, but. Uh, but by by bizarre coincidence, and this is just the way life works out. Uh, at the sort of last minute, both Dave and I separately had uh, our business schedule change on us. And wait, wait, wait a second! Wait a second! What? Y'all y'all are not coming down? No. What no. am I going to do with all these lineys? Yeah, oh, 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 wait, 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 wait. Never mind. Never yeah. mind. We'll be, I think, we'll, be there, we'll be down there in April. Yeah. Okay. I think you'll figure it out. I think you'll So we weren't able no, to make right. the trip down to Sebring, uh, which is kind of sad because I was really looking forward to both the uh, the uh, air show and the weather, although I understand it's fiercely cold down there right now. It uh, has been down to freezing yeah. uh, here last two or three nights. Um, but the weekend is supposed to be delightful, and and I think you know this is kind of be the 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 the, the winter uh, as far as we're concerned down here, mm-hmm. and uh, from here on out it's all gravy. Yeah. And David, how's the winter up there in uh, in Wichita? Are you surviving? Well, we've had a balmy 
middle of the week, uh, you know, it was almost <laughs> as if the meteorology noticed a change of administration on Tuesday because from Tuesday through uh, yesterday, Thursday, uh, it got progressively nicer. Mm-hmm. And then today, the cold wind returned, and we're looking at, you know, a forecast of some level of freezing precip over the weekend and, and uh, other sub-freezing uh, nonsense. So, uh, you know, it's it's kind of natural for Kansas, uh, this part of Kansas, this part of the year, uh, all over the map. Yeah, yeah. So did you get to do any flying recently, either of you? I was up in Georgia. Uh, flew up to Georgia last weekend. Came back. Went up Friday night. Came back Saturday, mm-hmm. and then uh, Sunday flew the airplane over here. So I'll, I'll fly it again. As I say, I'll, this weekend I'll get out and, and flog it for an hour or so. Just um, have you given up your hangar in uh, where was it Venice yet? I, that's my big project for the weekend is to get all my junk out of that out of that hangar. I've, I've you know given notice and I'll be out of it legally and um, physically uh, by the end of the month. Yeah. How about you, David? Flying. Uh, a little bit last weekend, uh, just a, a brief stint around in a 150 with a friend of mine uh, in between the uh, departure and arrival of my buddy Ben Sorensen's freshly restored first flight in 14 years, Cessna 195. Oh, Ooh. wow. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just do this shout out right now. Ben bought the airplane in 2000 and actually got seriously working on it in uh i guess about late 2001 because it took time for space to come open in the well of the souls at dead cow international and uh that's the very back of the main shop where airplane projects go to grow beards and cobwebs and become dust collectors for months or in the case of this 195 years and when ben lifted off the uh the 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 uh, asphalt at Dead Cow Sunday afternoon about 3.30. He'd been rebuilding this airplane for about seven years, four months, Mm -hmm. give or take. Now, now for people not familiar, how does a a 195 compare to other Cessnas we might be familiar with? Well, the Cessna 195 is a 40s-era design. It's a high-wing tail wheel, but it's cantilevered wing. And uh, I don't think there's any dihedral in the wing. Uh, big round engine. In the case of this one, yeah. it was 275 horsepower Jacobs radial. Um, mm, yeah. And it was Cessna's big business airplane about the same time that uh, Beach was unveiling the Bonanza. Mm-hmm. Uh, it uh, was a post-war World War II airplane. Uh, it's a big airplane. It is. Uh, it's a big airplane. It's also a fairly fast airplane, um, about a hundred and uh, about a hundred and thirty five hundred and forty knots on the two seventy five and the uh, three hundred horsepower versions of it. I understand would uh, get close to one hundred and forty five knots. So uh, this airplane had been uh, badly landed, to say the least, by a prior <laughs> owner. <laughs> and it see. did the tail over main gear over engine trick and landed Ouch. upside down. Ouch. And landed upside down with enough uh, uh, oomph to uh, create some wrinkles in the fuselage to damage both the wings. Because, uh, as I said, it's a cantilevered wing. Uh, 
engine had to be, you know, there was a prop strike involved, a propeller destroyed, uh, part of the fuselage crushed up above the roof, uh, wrinkles down the sides. Uh, and Ben's a fairly uh, resourceful mechanic. He's also an engineering test pilot. Uh, does contract work now quite a bit more since he retired from working for one of the companies here and uh, so he's been pulling and bucking rivets and replacing sheet metal and painting and reworking the interior and finding parts that haven't been in production in you know almost 60 years uh, for the last seven years and very slowly but surely the airplane came back to shape about eight months ago the uh, wings hung on it uh, and it got moved out of the well of the souls and then there was more work before the first engine start i think that's a great name by the way i just say it the, the well, well of the, the souls. souls yeah yeah that's that, that i came i came up with that years ago when i noticed on weekly visits or you know twice every other week visits to dead cow that there was generally a project in the very back of the shop that didn't change very quickly or even if it did change very quickly was there for an interminable period of time and i had an airplane back in that part of the shop myself for about seven months once so uh i feel like uh, some ownership to that well of the souls thing but mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. uh ben got it back uh replaced the prop got a rebuilt engine uh painted it to match the original paint scheme it looks good uh oh and uh, you know it was two and a half to uh, two and a half months to get somebody to fly along with him that's really familiar with it. Stand by that's a second. Cool. Somebody gets to put a quarter in the jar for yeah, having their yeah. phone ring during the podcast. Um, that's yeah. you know that's that's really cool. One ninety five are just very cool airplanes. They're they're tail draggers, uh, having been designed uh, in the forties. Uh, some of them have uh, crosswind landing gear, which is which pivots uh, casters, I should say. Um, and um, the big this radial engine, of course. Of yeah, big radial engine, and the the, the cabin is <clears throat> is basically you know forty seven Buick. Um, in that that's it's a just, good description. You know, yeah, yeah, it, it's 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 big. It's got you know crank handles. I think on the for the windows sometimes, yep. and maybe I'm confusing the one ninety five with right. other models. But uh, you know. Yeah, big doors and, and whatnot like that. The hot lick form, of course, is to hang a 450 Pratt on the front, but uh, um, you know that's for the faint, uh, the not faint of heart. Right, I'm not right. Yeah. That's for the fat of fuel bill that. wallet. <laughs> well, there's that too. Yeah, yeah. But it will it will get out of a short space and it will climb uh, with that 450. I don't, you know. Then again, I say that, and I'm not even sure that that uh, 195s can take the 450. I don't know. Yeah, well, I just this, did a quick Google. I found a picture. It's a, a cool airplane. Yeah. Oh, it didn't, it's yeah. it's one of it's one of my wife Annie's favorite models. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It does have the crank up and down windows and the cabin uh -huh. door and on the pilot side, it's got yeah. uh, 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 very short windows. Uh, if you look at it, yeah, yeah, the visibility the, is not all that good. It's true. Uh, the no, front it's, and the front window, the the windshield is actually look the, the cowling is very high. It, it's it, it's not unlike someone took a forty-nine Lincoln and lowered the lowered the roof. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a good it, description. It's a flying car, uh, yeah. but it was uh, it, it's a fast for for its size and its horsepower. It's a fast, efficient. Yeah. It was the uh, big business airplane for Cessna for a number of years. 
you know, it kind of went by the wayside when landomatic landing gear took over the Cessna line and everything went to flat engines and tricycle mm-hmm. gear. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're still highly valued. Uh, another friend of ours, Dick Russell, who's a high-time 195 pilot and longtime owner, uh, it took a couple of months for Ben to be able to coordinate with Dick. Uh, Ben got about 30 minutes of 195 time in Dick's airplane, and then it took him about two months plus between their various travel schedules and weather in the middle of the winter before they could finally get together Sunday. Uh, Sunday they went out and flew for a little over an hour. They went west of Wichita to uh, another good friend's uh, private strip, uh, Don Yoder's place out uh, west of uh, Goddard, Kansas. Nice big 3,500 foot grass about 200 Mm. feet wide and let Ben start to really get the feel for it and then he brought it back to dead cow and greased it onto the grass side with so much room to spare you could see him getting in and out of a 2,000 foot strip yeah very cool very very cool cool. just to update you guys and the listeners um uh, sad to say i haven't had been done much flying done any flying in almost six weeks now i guess it's been um some combination of work and the weather and me being a big wimp about the cold and whatnot Mm -hmm. um i I, i've all my uh my the two things i'm working on right now one is the tail dragger endorsement and the other is the go bosch checkout have been on hold Uh, i'm certainly going to continue those real soon now maybe even tomorrow depending on what the weather does here um I, i may wander up there and finish up the gobosh thing is probably the first thing that I want to do. And, that'd uh, be a good. That'd be a good way to, to swing what? the bat. That's right. Yeah. yeah. yeah so, anyways, and, and you and you know, don't forget, you're, you're always welcome down here. I well, you know, uh, like like Dave said, we're, I mean, I, I I was telling our our friend uh, Dave Schalbetter from uh, from yeah. uh, Sun and Fun Radio today by email that uh, that come or hell come hell or high water, I was going to make it down there for Sun and Fun, and that's the yeah. truth. Um, yeah. And the idea of maybe coming down for a long weekend or something between now and then is very mm-hmm. possible if if you know if you're really serious, if you're really well, reckless I'm, enough about this offer. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. I'd love to see the new place uh, as soon as possible because I, I was really looking forward to it. Yeah. Anyways, let's see what's going on. So, let's see. I don't know. Is there any news in aviation this week? Oh, yeah. Uh, no, no, oh, wait. <laughs> An airliner landed in the Hudson River. Just no kidding. <laughs> yeah. Really? How did I miss that? It yeah. landed there or it watered there? Well, you know, I, I've been, you know, I've, <laughs> I've spent the last week and a half on on all the different uh, uh, network things in my, you know, instant message and and websites and blogs and Twitter and all this stuff, try, campaigning for the idea that this was not a crash. That this was a forced right. water landing. All right, and in fact, it was. That's correct. I mean, I've seen I've seen successful paved surface landings that were rougher than this one. Right. Right. Uh, right. This was pretty amazing. So, you know, and I, I suspect that our listeners um, have probably all read this story and kind of know a lot of the details uh, left and right. So we won't re- rehash all the, the the general details of this. But I, I'm really curious to hear what, because I have not spoken to either of you about this uh, since then. What's What's been your reaction to this whole thing? Well, um, the react- my to... reaction, first of yeah, all, I guess, ahead. is, you know, is, is this how the general media has eaten this up? Yeah, um, well, it, it's the, a good news story, pilot, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's been a big story, and, and, you know, it was, you know, um, obviously a bunch of good news. There was a bunch of great things that happened here, uh, all things considered. Um, first of all, you know, you got a... Uh, you, you got a, a, a basically a fully loaded or close to fully loaded uh, airliner <clears throat> taking off out of a major metropolitan area, 
build-ups, commercial buildings, skyscrapers all around, and boom, they got no power. Uh, what are you going to do? They can't go back to where they started. Uh, they can't get to any of the other outlying airports. Um, what are you going to do? You put it down on an interstate uh, on, a, on, a, on a crowded uh, afternoon? No. You put it um, down in the middle of Manhattan. What a disaster. Yeah, exactly. So the the crew, and I have to use the word crew because this was a team effort. Not you know Everybody's making a big deal about the captain. And clearly the captain uh, deserves all the credit and all the accolades and, and all the thanks that he gets. But it was a crew effort. There was a first officer involved here also. Yeah. So the crew did everything right. And the they cabin did crew did their, their jobs, training. too. The cabin um, crew did flew, their job. They, the, the cabin crew did their jobs. Um, they flew the airplane through the crash, just like uh, uh, Bob Hoover would, would suggest, and I think we've talked about it in the past. Um, they were lucky, yeah. but they were skilled. They were well-trained. Uh, nobody's ever prepared for anything uh, uh, like that, but when it happens, you do what you have to do. You revert to your training, and you get the job done. And, and you, you know, fly the guys, airplane, as the man You fly says. the airplane, and these guys did that. And uh, it's on one level, it's kind of head scratching, curious that they're getting uh, all the accolades that they're getting. On another level, I understand it, and mm-hmm. and and I'm right beside everybody who wants to shake their hand and, and slap them on the back and say nice job yeah the flip side of that is um i would guess that 99.99 percent of the commercial pilots out there could probably have done the same thing and probably would have ended up doing the same thing they might not have done it better uh, i can't but, imagine they uh, would have done it better boy you yeah. know he just you know it's like you say they they did their jobs and Mm-hmm. But they did their jobs really well, uh, yeah. you know. It, it, by well, and, and you think about it, everybody did their jobs well, from from ATC to the crew to the cabin crew um, to the emergency responders. Even the passengers um, did their job. Really even the well. passengers did their jobs correctly. It's it's unheard of, um, and in fact, I researched this a little bit. Uh, there's a Wikipedia article on water landings or ditchings or, or whatever, and uh, presuming it's authoritative, which, of course, you know, can be iffy at times, but presuming it's authoritative, there's really only ever been one other uh, intentional water landing, and I'm going to use those words for a, per- for a reason, um, intentional water landing of a jet transport that resulted in no fatalities, and that was in the early 60s in Russia involving a, a Tupolev two-engine uh, airliner. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been a number of other water landings the that were not intentional in which uh, of a jet transport in which people were not injured or, I'm sorry, were not killed, uh, but there have been a, a much greater number of, of uh, water landings of jet transports in which there were fatalities. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was just an incredible feat on on everybody's part. Uh, the crew's gotten a lot of credit, as they should, but so many other people got, should get credit, too. Yeah. David, what are your well, thoughts? There's, well, there's, there's a couple of things here, and, and luck certainly has an element in this. Uh, you know, luck that they didn't get hit by those birds five or six hundred feet lower at right. which case at which point they may not have made it across Manhattan Island. Uh, 
luck that they uh, that they got as high as they did. Uh, you know, it's like they teach you in twin engine training. Until you're high enough to turn back to the airport with a dead engine, uh, your hand stays on those throttles and, and prepared to feather one. And here you had both go away. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't high enough to turn back to the airport. Uh, second, I think an enormous amount of credit needs to go to the captain uh, because this is an example of what happens when you have a high-time sailplane pilot in an airliner that's become a glider. Yeah. Okay. There's a whole different mindset to flying sailplanes, and some of that stuff is counterintuitive to what what we're taught when we're taught to fly behind engines. Uh, for example, you know, there's an instinct to slow things down to stretch out how long you've got in the air, which is not necessarily the correct thing to do if you want to maximize the distance that you go in an airplane with a dead engine or in a sailplane or a hang glider for that, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Faster is very often better. Uh, he cleared the George Washington Bridge. He got across Manhattan with dead engines and then cleared the George Washington Bridge. Are you certain of I that? Think, is that? Yeah. And that is yeah. the case. Okay. All right. Yeah. Go ahead. He had, I'm he sorry, had David. several hundred feet, but he still, I mean, that was clearly an obstacle that they had to clear. Okay. Go ahead, David. I'm sorry. He cleared the bridge. Yeah. He, he got across Manhattan. He resisted the temptation to try to turn back. Uh, and I think instinct as a sailplane pilot mm-hmm. told him, you know, you're not going to make it back there. You th- you know that that's the thing to do. That's the closest place to land is back at LaGuardia. And it's completely improbable, if not impossible, because you got more bridges across the East River to deal with if you come up short. And you got all that population center right there around LaGuardia if you come up short. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the East River and LaGuardia are really questionable. Making one of the airports in New Jersey was clearly out. So he made the decision before he was across the island, from yeah. what I've read, that the river was where they were going. Yeah. yeah. He said that on the radio pretty early on, apparently. Yeah. yeah. And uh, got the uh, airplane, nursed it across at best glide from, from the way the track plays out, across the GW Bridge, and then set it up for what the Airbus A320 book is textbook for ditching yeah. and water landing and that's uh you know number three position on the flaps 11 degrees pitch up 150 knots yeah. and man he was not very high when they hit these birds you know what was it like 3500 feet 3500 feet is not very high the, in my uh, 150 all right the, the I record think he was as high as 3500 what was 3200 was the highest thing 30, i saw 30, yeah 3200 was was uh what people are saying is when they hit the birds and um you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of video out there on the internet. I know AvWeb has has provided some links to some, and and we've kind of back and forth provided some links among ourselves here. Um, there's two or three uh, different videos from various security cameras um, that have been displayed or or I should say traded around. Um, all of them show, um, well, at least a couple of them show just a, a really high deck angle on that airplane yeah it wasn't you know he, he knew from his training what to do and how to do it um he had the nose really high up the the first part of the airplane that touched down was well well aft of the wings 
and he never got <clears> through um, the first officer uh, uh what is it jeff skilly something like that yeah i don't have it in front of me but yeah he didn't make it through the engine out something checklist like to that, get yeah. to the ditching checklist uh that was how fast things were happening how quickly they were coming down uh-huh yeah that flare uh, is pretty uh, interesting right. i agree one of the that afternoon when we were still listening to live reports uh-huh. and they were trying to get people off the air off the wings and so forth they had one of the witnesses on uh, over on on uh, i guess on uh, manhattan uh, and and he it was interesting because he's talking to the news person and he's describing what he saw and the way he described it was he said I saw the airplane coming down and then at the last minute the captain tried made one last ditch attempt to climb out all right but he couldn't do it so then he put it in the water and I'm sitting here yelling at the TV going yeah. no that wasn't an attempt to climb out that climb was out. that was a flare yeah that's right, right. Yeah. he was yeah. flaring for the yeah. touchdown and exactly. just from the very beginning it was clear that the, the it's just what a wonderful job don't you wish yeah. don't you hope that when if knock on wood heaven forbid your day comes you do half as good a job well exactly. it, it brought to mind uh, another very classic twin engine total failure uh where everybody walked away mm-hmm. and that was i believe an a300 another airbus uh air canada uh on a transcontinental flight and as it worked out the 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 flight deck instruments let you use pounds or kilograms for fuel there was a miscommunication in fueling and the airplane wound up with the right quantity by one standard, but the wrong quantity for the standard needed for the trip. Right. So at cruise altitude, about like, halfway across Alberta, the engines flamed out, both right. of them, within seconds of one another. The captain, a high-time sailplane pilot himself, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. got his first officer at work finding a, a suitable piece of pavement, if there was one, and the first officer found something almost 60 miles away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he arrived at that, at that runway, uh, Gimli, Alberta, I believe was the name uh-huh. of the place, because the airplane came to be called the Gimli Glider. Uh, but he arrived there high and yeah. bled off altitude in classic sailplane pilot style, got the wheels down, and got it on the pavement, scared the bejesus out of a bunch of people that were drag on that strip because it had long since been closed for airplane use and everybody walked away that's right that's right 767 by the way was that a six seven yeah okay my mistake uh you know and you know there's that great story so here's here's little known fact all right so we we talked about this on the on the episode on the podcast uh, in the past um one of the kids who was on the runway or the so-called runway on the ground who had to get out of the uh-huh. way for the gimli glider all right <clears throat> then a bunch of years later all right he was driving his car down the road all right and another forced landing almost hit him on the ground all right and this did was you, within the last couple of three months. That's right. I remember talking. Did you know that he was driving across the George Washington Bridge that day? Get the hell out. No, I made that up. You'd <laughs> yeah, you, you best. You'd best. Well, gonna, I, I got, I got that beat. I got that beat. What, what, what? I, um, listeners have, have heard me talk about a buddy of mine who's a captain for um, uh, um, uh, a, quote, major airline, unquote, yeah. uh, flying regional jets. Um, I texted him 
that a- the afternoon of this uh, this U.S. Airways uh, um, splashdown, and basically said, "Hey, you're not anywhere near L- LGA this afternoon, are you?" And I didn't hear back from him immediately, which is odd because normally he's got his cell phone with him. Um, and I figured, well, you know, maybe he's out flying today. So sure enough, about an hour and a half later, he calls me back and says, "He's he's in uh, Pittsburgh. Uh, had just it just arrived." He says, "I'm doing a quick turn. I'm going back." I said, "Where are you going back to?" He says, "LaGuardia." He was at the gate at LaGuardia when this flight departed. Hmm. Uh, and they had a little ground hold at LaGuardia uh, for a few minutes, and then he he punched out and went on to Pittsburgh and yada, yada, yada. But he was also on the ground in his in his airliner getting ready to, I think he's actually in the conga line, in Boston on the morning of September 11th. Oh, really? After, um, after those aircraft, after those hijacked aircraft had departed. Um, so, yeah, you kind of, I'm not sure I want to fly with him anytime soon. <laughs> I definitely want to know where he's going, where he's going to be. Before we leave the uh, U.S. Air Hudson River Express, uh, last Saturday on the radio program, National Public Radio Program, Prairie Home Companion, uh-huh. uh, the host, Garrison Keeler sang a song that he composed on Friday to a tribute to the captain and the first officer and the rest of the flight crew, the flight attendants. One of our listeners, I apologize for not knowing who this was right off the top, but one of our listeners was nice enough to post the link on our forums page. It will take you right to that segment of the radio program so you can hear the introduction to the song, listen to the song, and and go away. Uh, The lyrics are brilliant. Uh, Mr. Keeler worked in the names of all the crew uh, uh, at least twice. Uh huh. That's uh, great. That's great. I haven't heard that. That's. Good. I want to. I'll track that down. And, 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 and he wrote the song on a flight between Minneapolis, St. Paul, and Louisville, Kentucky, where they were doing Prairie Home Companion live at a theater in downtown Derby City. Mm-hmm. So, very cool. I don't think this had been 24 hours since the accident. Yeah, well, they, you do a live weekly radio program. Some of them, unlike this one, are actually kind of creative. And uh, <laughs> Hey, listen, so congratulations to all of the crew and the, and the passengers and everybody involved with the uh, successful outcome oh, and, of this U.S. Airways flight. And the ferry boat captains and the ferry boat yeah. passengers that were tossing out life, uh, life vests to those people huddling on the wings. This is, uh, this is without a doubt, the uh, off-field landing of the week. So, and, uh, and, you know, one other, one other point here, not, 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 to, not to belabor this, but talking about, as I did a moment ago, about how everybody had a role to play in this and everybody played their role well. Think about the ferry boat captains and, and uh, uh, the other uh, vessels that, that arrived there to, to get people off the wing. Think about the ship handling skills. Yeah. That they yeah. engaged in because you know they're headed towards this at full chat, and you know they come and up and ease you know, boat, it up. Boat, yeah, it, boats don't have brakes, and you know they ease up and and they're floating there, bobbing right beside this fuselage. Of course, the whole kit and caboodle is drifting downstream. Yeah, and yeah. you know the whole thing was just surreal to watch on television and and in its aftermath, whether live or otherwise. And and that uh, first you know, ferry boat, everybody. Yeah, that first ferry boat arrived. Less than four minutes 
Yeah. After that airplane touched the water, I watched one of the videos twice, and yeah. and it had a timestamp on it, and was amazed at the uh, at the alertness and the expediency. And that one came from Manhattan, yeah. and uh, uh, came up from the uh, ferry wharf there. Uh, you know, I'm sure it flanked speed for that big ferry boat. Yeah. And then just greased it in next to the wing, yeah. like like. Like it was just barely me match the drift downwind yeah. or downstream, I, and then I, I people started throwing life I wonder life if vests. some people even got their f- yeah. Say, say again, I wonder Jeff? if some people even got their feet wet. Well, no, I think they all got their feet wet. But uh, yeah, a great outcome, Captain Chesley Sullenberger the third. That's right. That's right. So to the entire crew, the passengers, everybody, congratulations, good job. Hey, we got to move on here. Uh, so, David, you've called our attention to some story about uh, a proposed law or something about sailplanes having transponders. What's your what's your take on this whole thing? Well, the uh, NTSB has been after this for years, and uh, the uh, Washington Examiner a few days ago took this on. Uh, well, about a week ago now. Um, under a story called bureaucracy on the ground could kill you in the air and it talked about how the FAA has resisted requiring sailplanes to uh, have transponders on board uh, you know I, I, I think there's some definite merit to the idea of requiring sailplanes to have transponders particularly in parts of the country where they can get into the flight levels uh, in other parts of the country where they barely break 5,000, 6,000 feet or, or ridge soar, uh, I really question the, uh, the, the, the value of it. But I brought it up because I know sailplane pilots here locally who uh, have installed them on their own sailplanes. Mm-hmm. And there are sailplane, or there are transponders suitable for these sailplanes that have very low current draw. Uh, will run on a uh, high-tech battery for hours. And at first I was kind of, you know, yeah, above 10,000 feet, I think there's some merit to the idea if you're flying flying someplace like the Sierras where you can get above 18. Yeah, right. That, see, that's, Absolutely. I'm a, little, I'm a little surprised that, that well, this is not the re- regulation I, I, already. I, I'm going to take a contrary view when you all are finished. Okay. And so is it the case... I know that, for example, what you're alluding to, David, is that there are times when a sailplane can make arrangements with ATC and go particularly high right. uh, for, you know, because they, they do it for a thrill or for records or for whatever reason. And are you saying that even in those cases, when a sailplane gets a clearance to a, a flight level almost, it's still not required to carry a transponder? That's, it's not required, and I'm beginning to I'm, I'm I'm beginning to come around to the idea that this is no longer the technological obstacle that it was 20 years ago, it with seems- only transponders and the only batteries that were available, uh, you know, could add 35 or 40 pounds of uh, of, of uh, dead weight to a sailplane. Uh, sailplane performance has gone up. Uh, electronics performance and battery performance has brought the weight of all this stuff down. And I'm thinking maybe the time has come. Yeah. If you're going to be above 10,000 feet, for example, or if you're going to be anywhere on near an airway, you know, that that's the hot setup because we're not requiring transponders on, on, on airplanes like, you know, our buddy Champ guys, Aronka. 
no electrical system and the rules don't require that. Uh, and he can putter along in controlled airspace at low altitudes and be legal and you know pretty much safe because he's doing about 65 miles an hour and it's not much there's not much he's going to encounter in the altitudes and the speeds that he flies as long as he stays you know alert around airports sailplanes can be a different breed of cat yeah i've personally been higher than ten thousand feet in a hang glider right and saw airplane traffic below me and kind of went Ooh, I'm glad I'm up here right now. Yeah, right. I, it would seem to me that a, that a regulation that required transponders in a sailplane above a certain altitude would be reasonable. Jeb, what are you going to say? Well, a couple of things. Is there a regulation that requires a transponder above a certain altitude in a powered airplane? Yes, there is. Which is it? And what altitude? 180. Uh-huh. That's correct. Um, so we have powered airplanes bouncing around. Um, at and below uh, 17,999 uh, that are not required to have a transponder. So why should we not, if we're going to have such a rule for sailplanes, why should we not have such a rule for powered airplanes? No, but maybe we should apply the 18 uh, rule to sailplanes. Well, well, we can. Um, and, and yes, there are um, small solid-state transponders um, that... Um, um, are, can be battery-powered and, and can work on battery power. Um, they do, of course, you know, the battery is, is heavy, the transponder is heavy, and sailplanes, of course, are weight-critical. But to go above 18,000 feet, or flight level 180, uh, you have to have an IFR clearance. And yeah. um, sailplanes have long been doing this uh, with the cooperation uh, of ATC. What What they do is when, they, when they're planning a flight, when the conditions are right, and the sailplane pilot um, knows that um, he's going to go above or at or above uh, 18,000 feet, he coordinates with ATC. And ATC does something very similar to what they do uh, with a, a military operations area above 18,000 feet. They just kind of block off that airspace informally. And I don't know the correct term for it, but it's it's basically the same procedure. And any aircraft going through, going near that airspace, are kept away from the area in which the sailplane is operating. All of this is coordinated before the sailplane goes aloft. Um, they do have, uh, uh, generally anyway, they do have battery-powered radios. Some sailplanes don't even have that. Um, and it's all done, you know, via telephone and or, you know, a, a specified clearance uh, worked out beforehand. Um, furthermore, there's never been, to my knowledge, um, a an accident involving a commercial airliner, um, mm-hmm. a collision, I should say, between a sailplane and a commercial airliner uh, above 18,000 feet. There was a, a very notable um collision between a uh, Hawker Bizjet right. and a sailplane. This was a couple of years ago now. I believe that co- that occurred below 18,000 feet. Not by much. About 16,000 if memory is correct. Yeah. The 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 pilot in the sailplane um uh, parachuted out uh and survived. The crew and passengers in the Hawker um, landed with a damaged airplane, but everybody walked away from that also. And, f- you know, if, if 
I guess my point ultimately is, um, yeah, um, there, there, it'd be nice to be able to do this, um, but if we're going to do that for sailplanes, uh, we need to do it for powered airplanes also. And there's a lot of territory in the United States, uh, in the lower 48 anyway, and in, in Alaska too, where um, you can be, you know, say within 2,500 AGL of the surface uh, and still be uh, well above 10,000 feet. Yeah, it ain't that's nowhere, correct. There's no jets. There's no jets. There's no commercial traffic going to be in that airspace. And, um, you know, let's, I guess, let's be careful what we wish for. Um we could well, end there, up with a rule that requires powered airplanes, the, the, your average air knocker, which, you know, yeah, they're, they're unlikely to get above 10, but with the right set of thermals, just like for a sailplane um, or, or a lot of perseverance on the part of the pilot, uh, they can certainly get there. Um, so sailplanes are not, are not the problem. Well, there's a there's a there's a, an alternative here that I, I don't think was explored at all in the uh, DC Examiner article. It's completely overlooked, and this was what gave me a little hesitation about, you know, saying that this has got to be done, uh, particularly below eighteen thousand feet, and that's the idea of a portable low power collision avoidance system, mm-hmm. and we know such stuff exists because. We've seen it personally at some of the fly-ins and larger, larger air shows. Uh, I'm thinking specifically like the uh, Zeon MRX. Sure. It's a little panel top, runs on two AA batteries, and it's not much bigger than five AA batteries. Which is also an uncertified device. It's an uncertified device, but it would give the sailplane pilot at a very small weight penalty... A, uh, a warning of a transponder-equipped aircraft coming at him, a direction, and a relative range, yeah. which would and, give and, the sailplane and, and, pilot and, the opportunity to maneuver away from. And a, and a great idea for a sailplane pilot to have, and I'm sure there are many out there who do. Um, I would be reluctant to see the FAA require that. Further, it would be the first time that they would require a non-certified device. In and that's what I was going to say. Is you, I just can't imagine them making a requirement yeah. that allowed allowed an uncertified device. It would just get more yeah. complicated than that real fast. That, 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 that's well, you got to stop. You got to remember now that light sport aircraft manufacturers are allowed to require equipment on their aircraft as part of the approved package that is uh-huh. not necessarily FAA approved. Yeah. I agree with that, but. But um, that's a, di- a completely different uh, certification basis uh, from sailplanes. If, if, if the FAA wants to go back and change the certification basis retroactively for sailplanes, they can certainly do that. And in fact, it's, it's, it's probably, excuse me, it's probably arguable that um, um, sailplanes um, fit the definition of an LSA, even though sailplanes are not certificated as LSAs. No, but they um, can be. They can there is be, a category but, but, for non-powered right, right. But, light but sport aircraft. All the sailplanes of which I'm aware are not so certificated. So it's, it's kind of an apples or oranges situation. Dave, I, agree, I understand where you're coming from, and, and one part of me agrees with you 110%. Another part of me um, um, 
wonders if if uh, the camel's nose is starting to snort a little bit outside the tent. Well, that's definitely true, but I, I don't think there's uh, I don't think there's a real justification for allowing it to happen above one eight zero. Well, uh, you know the traffic that flies at that altitude is is definitely high performance, high speed traffic mm-hmm. at those altitudes and higher. Uh, and we know that over the island of Hawaii, for example, there was a gentleman that was just lost attempting to set a record at 40,000 feet over there. He'd break, mm-hmm. he'd broken 33,000 feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, my old friend Don Ingen died right. in a uh, record sailplane flight over the Sierras. A two-place sailplane killed him and the fellow with him. It broke yeah. up at very high altitude. They got into some mountain wave and a shear layer, and they never really had a chance. Right. Uh, and this uh, collision with the Hawker, uh, at 60, about 16,000 feet, if memory serves, yeah. and uh, that's right in there. And I believe the sailplane pilot had been higher than that uh, not long before the collision happened. And you got to remember, over parts of the Sierra getting above... Uh, Getting above 18,000 feet is only a few thousand feet above the terrain. Yeah. That's right. Hey, we got to move on here. We're probably going to leave. The, it's, it's a puzzler, that's for sure. And uh, it is for sure. I guess we're going to have to leave it to the forums to solve this problem, and they will. Jane, you ignorant <laughs> slut. They will. The forums will come up with uh, six or seven <laughs> possible solutions here. They're doing great things over there. Anyways, moving on. Let's see. Um, so, well, here we go. We have uh, a new president now since the last time All we right. recorded this podcast, and. Uh, and that has resulted in a lot of activity uh, uh, related to uh, aviation in Washington. And uh, and and although I'm not going to go as far as doing uh, doing uh, uh, what did I call it last week? Uh, lightning round. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, I would like to move. I would like oh, to please. move through these as Don't. quickly as we possibly can. Um, I was going to say I was hoping lightning would strike in the same place twice. Yeah, but. right. So we have a new uh, Secretary of Transportation. Uh, Ray LaHood is the new Sec Dot. And uh, what do we know about this guy? Is he a good guy? I think he's a good pick. Yeah. Uh, oh, Jeb, that was sounded like a groan. What was that? Well. I I don't know that much about him. He he was in the uh, in the House of Representatives a few years back when when I was doing some some uh, transportation lobby work, and uh, I never really had any any interaction with him or his staff. Um, he was um, you know there. He he was obviously attentive. He um, uh, was on the transportation infrastructure house in, transportation and infrastructure committee for a reason um ostensibly that reason was you know an interest in, in transportation and in, in improving the infrastructure um i i don't have any any um i don't know how should i put this i don't have any information on him one way or another uh but that in and of itself kind of gives me you know kind of a head scratching uh pause not that I'm, you know, God's gift to this kind of information. Mm-hmm. Um, th- all of that having been said, I'm taking a wait-and-see attitude. Yeah. Uh, he, he's clearly going in um, with um, a lot of goodwill from the industry and from uh, from others in Congress. Um, if, if, you know, I, I don't want to put too fine a point on this, but if, if Obama thinks that he's the right for the job, then I... 
Uh, I'm not going to question Obama on this. He hasn't done anything wrong yet, neither LaHood nor Obama. So I'm I'm reluctant to to criticize. I I, um, I, I there are other people I think out there who who, who would have done at least as good, um, or who who would be at, at least as appropriate. I should say. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, I'm no optimistic about that. Yeah, I'm optimistic LaHood will do a good job. Uh, we need a good job done in that position, um, and uh, I, you know, for the time being, uh, I'm, I'm taking a wait and see attitude. Yeah, quickly, David, you think that something interesting came out of his uh, his uh, confirmation hearing? Well, I've been following this since he got the nomination back in December. I was familiar with his name from his time on the uh, House Aviation Committee. Uh, he was a seven-term Republican congressman from the Peoria, Illinois area. It's got a long-standing relationship with uh, with uh, President Obama uh, from his time when President Obama's time in uh, Illinois politics. Uh, Mr. LaHood has an excellent working relationship, from what I've been able to dig up, with uh, President Obama's chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, who's another former congressman from Illinois. Uh-huh. Uh, those, I think, are, are are positive things for having someone that knows. How to work with Congress, someone who understands the broad implications of what the Transportation Department is involved in. Uh, the fact that he never rose to a leadership position on that committee, uh, as my research has played out, it seems to be more a result of the fact that he would not kowtow to the more extreme members of his party. Uh, and he came in as part of the Republican Revolution in 1994, but he was one of a handful of Republicans who did not sign the uh, infamous contract with America, hmm. which put him off That's... on the wrong foot with with Speaker Gingrich right off the yeah. top. I did not and know I... that, and that's that's good to know. Let me let me add another uh, uh, factoid, if you will, uh, uh, to that. Um, LaHood was a Republican member of that committee at a time when it was very political. Um, most recently, it was, the committee was chaired, well, at least under the Republicans, um, most recently the committee was chaired by Representative Don Young of Alaska. Uh-huh. Young has has been embroiled in, um, in uh, some ethical, uh, ethically questionable behavior, let's put it that way. Um, and I believe there are some court uh, appearances involved and things of this sort. Um, if LaHood had been playing the game as set forth by Mr. Young, I suspect Mr. LaHood would have had um, a, a higher visibility role at the Transportation Infrastructure Committee. In the Absolutely. Yeah. Well, he, that, he, yeah, he bumped that he did heads not with have the... such a role. Yeah. That he, he did not have it. such a role uh, tells me that he didn't play the game with with Young, and that's another feather in his cap. So he was he was he was definitely point. a moderate. He bumped he bucked uh, Congressman uh, Delay when he was the uh, majority leader, uh, which you know is another kiss because Delay had most of the House Republicans in lockstep. Uh, regardless of how radical or unreasonable the position, real quick and dirty, a couple of things that gave me real hope here. First off, one of the things that Mr. LaHood said he wanted to take care of was resolving the uh, imposed labor settlement 
that the FAA under Marion Blakey laid on the air traffic controllers and has been a bone of contention ever since and prompted a much higher rate of retirements before mandatory retirement agency than Mrs. Blakey suggested or suspected, whatever, however you want to put it. Uh, second, he's been an opponent of the user fee solution to funding the FAA that was so popular with the Bush administration and the Air Transport Association. That gives me good pause or good feelings. And finally, and I'll bail out at this one, uh, he is uh, very much behind putting money into the uh, next gen. Uh, after setting some realistic benchmarks so that within the next five years everyone in the aviation community knows in what direction the government is taking air traffic control and what's going to be expected of the users and what's going to be uh, delivered by the government in the same time. So uh, now I'm anxiously awaiting to see who gets nominated for the FAA post and that, right. one, that yeah. one's got some yes. interesting names floating around. And quickly, what names are we hearing? Sushi. Well, one of them is Rob, Robert Herbert, who's a uh, uh, senior policy advisor on transportation, military, and veteran affairs to uh, Senator Reid, the majority leader. He is a pilot, Mr. Herbert is. Uh, another name, another pilot. Uh, and Mr. Herbert is a GA pilot. This is the one that got uh, floated way back when. That uh... Well, it's one that got floated way back when. Another name, another pilot is Dwayne Worth who's a former airline pilot and former president of the Airline Pilots Association. Okay. Uh, Neil Planzer uh, yeah. from Boeing, a vice president for air traffic management at Boeing. Uh, Jerry Costello. Uh, Planzer was also at the FAA for a number of years. Yes, he was. He's, 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 okay. He's, he's, he's been at the FAA. FAA. That's correct. And yeah. Jerry Costello, who's another Illinois congressman who heads the House Transportation and Infrastructure Aviation Subcommittee uh -huh. and has been very active and very friendly to GA. Matter of fact, he served as the... Uh, uh, the uh, head of the House of Representatives on Inauguration Day and gaveled them to order before they went out to uh, witness the inauguration. And the last one is the one that disturbs me most of all. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's Jane Garvey. Uh -huh. <laughs> now, I liked Jane, uh, and, and, and I feel like I can call her by first name because she knew me by first name. Uh, Mrs. Garvey was at the FAA once from 1997 to 2002. She was the first administrator to actually hold the full five-year term as created by Congress back in the Clinton administration. Uh, she was much more beloved by the community than she was inside. And I'm not sure that bringing her back would be a service to uh, the aviation community nor the FAA employees because I'm of an opinion and I'm very adamant about this that it's really time that we put the FAA leadership back in the hands of people who actually come from the aviation community as pilots okay who are users uh, the the broader their experience in other areas the better but this idea of bringing in people with you know ancillary aviation background mrs garvey served on massport and she was a, uh, a director of the airports there uh, that's not aviation experience that's managing a ground 
services company. Yeah, okay. Let's move on here, but I want to ask, I want before we move away from FAA administrator, I want to um, ask each... J- j- okay, yeah, just, Jeb, go ahead, I, real know, quick, Jeb. I'm surprised, I'm surprised Garvey's name is still in the mix. Uh, her name surfaced early on uh, relative to the SecDot position. Um, I really think people no, are reading too much into her being Obama's transition chief for yeah. aviation. I think so, too. I think so, too. Okay. Uh, and and uh, I, I think she'll go back to... Uh, um, the uh, consulting practice or the uh, uh, academic position, whatever okay. it was that she had. She, she's obviously missed the SecDot slot. Um, maybe she'll be nominated to the NTSB at some point. Uh, maybe there's another uh, infrastructure-related position um, um, that Obama could name her to. But I, I can't imagine she would even want to go back to the FAA. I can't either. I, I only brought it up because her name has appeared every time I've come up with a list. Uh, I've come up with about five lists in the last two weeks. The five names that I read out there were common to okay. one or more of those lists. So, Before we move yeah. on, let me ask both of you a two-part question here, uh, starting with David. Uh, first of all, from this short list, who would you pick if you were the guy to pick? And second of all, who do you think is most likely to actually be picked from this list? Oh, who would I pick? Uh, probably the guy from Alpa. What was that uh, name again? Really? Dwayne Worth. Dwayne Worth. Okay. And who do you think is most likely to actually be picked? Uh, boy, I wouldn't begin to. Uh, okay. I, I really don't have a feel there. Jeb? Um, Neil Planzer would be, uh, I think, the guy I would choose to Either between him or him or Costello, I think would be the uh, the people or the person I should say most likely to succeed to that position. The person who would scare me the most in that slot would be Reed's uh, former yeah. staffer, not yeah. because I know him, but because I know Reed yeah. um, uh, or okay. know about Reed. Okay. Um, Moving so on to another, I, I, yeah, go ahead, yeah, that's, quickly. That's my answer. Yeah, Worth, I don't think, is going to make the cut simply because I don't think he can get confirmed in the Senate. Two more uh, federal aviation stories here, uh, somewhat or directly related to the new president. Uh, first of all, the uh, the GA. now I don't quite understand this. I'm just going to read the headline. The GAO, the General Accounting Office, has dropped ATZ modernization from the quote-unquote troubled programs list. What does that mean? <laughs> well, real quick and dirty, and I'll keep this fast. This was fed to me by one of my friends at 800 Independence, yeah. FAA headquarters. Every two years, the uh, Government Accountability Office uh, releases a list of troubled programs that need particular attention from Congressional Oversight and Appropriations Committees. The, 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 the list just came out, and for the first time since 1995, the FAA's air traffic control modernization program is not on the list. Now, this, you know, was a cause of a little bit of glass clinking and extra pastries being passed out on the tenth floor of 800 Independence, uh, because they sent a letter out. The acting administrator, Lynn Osmus, sent a letter out uh, to the employees announcing that uh, accomplishment. Now, the last time the GAO removed an FAA program or uh, activity from this list was in 2005 when the GAO removed the FAA's financial management 
from its high risk list because of the progress and improvements the FAA had made in that area. And they have made progress in both of these areas. The problem is that the FAA's air traffic control modernization program, uh, you know, the progress that they've made is that they've managed to not go backward. Well, right. See, th- this this all reminds me of um, years ago uh, when I was matriculating at an institution of higher learning. Playboy magazine came out with their <laughs> list of top top. Now listen, to, hear me out now. Playboy magazine came out with their list of top party colleges. Jeb's favorite aviation publication. <laughs> right. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, one and, of mine. And, <laughs> go yeah, ahead. and. And the magazine, you know, named all of these colleges and universities as party schools and whatnot, but they did not name, they did not even rank my alma mater. Oh, man. And the reason they didn't do that, the reason they didn't rank uh, uh, my alma mater is because they declined to mix in a professional with a bunch of amateurs. <laughs> okay. okay. While well, you're talking about so, Playboy magazine, little so, so no, 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 guys, let me finish the analogy here. Go ahead. Go so ahead. the analogy that I'm trying to draw <laughs> is that the GAO has decided not to put ATC modernization into this troubled programs list because why bother? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, that's okay. <laughs> All right. All right. <clears throat> Uh, I'm sorry, we really have to move on here. One final <laughs> one final uh, federal story, and then we'll move back to real aviation stories here. Uh, and that, and I just, I, you know, I entitled this in our little headline list, I entitled this A New Hope, all right? Um, one of the very first things that President Obama did when he, after being sworn in was, let's see, reading from, uh, this is the first paragraph of a story on, on AOPA.org's AOP Online, uh, within minutes of being sworn in, the Obama administration put a hold on all new and pending regulations, a move that could affect implementation of a rule making the Washington, D.C. Air Defense Identification Zone permanent. Um, and I would extend this to wondering whether or not this puts uh, LASP on hold as well. Um, but in any event, the this quick is... Answer, it, yeah, go ahead. The quick answer, it does, not, it, it does not put LASP on hold because it's not a final rule yet. Right. It's already been published in the Federal Register and Mr. Emanuel's memo. Mr. Emanuel's memo, I read it today, yeah. uh, said that this applies to rules and, and proposals that haven't been published yet as proposals or as final rules in the Federal Register. Uh, right. This has already right. been now, published in the Federal Register as a proposal. Dave, so Dave, here's the distinction. Yeah, I'll go ahead. Right, but not as a, not as a final rule. Okay, the the eighties rule is a final rule, right? But the LASP rule is not has not been published as a final rule, right? So it, the rulemaking on LASP can continue, but That's the eighties right. rule is is held in abeyance. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah, yeah the eighties right. I agree with you. No, I think we're on the same okay. page. Okay. The LASP right. proposal, though, is going to be subject to this review as well. And if it's going to slip through, it's going to slip through on the national security exemption that was stated in Mr. Emanuel's memo to all the agencies. Uh, uh, Personally, as this thing rolls out and the public meetings that have been going on continue, the uh, depth of problems and the depth of trouble that the TSA has with this uh, in terms of the quality of the proposal 
just become more and more apparent. Yeah. Uh, now yeah. we're beginning to see uh, opponents, which is pretty much everybody in general aviation, stand up and tell the uh, uh, TSA folks that not only is it a bad idea or a bad set of ideas, but their NPRM itself is fraught with a number of factual errors in its assumptions and in its statements. And as such, deserves to be withdrawn completely. And then here's where the debate comes in. Some outfits would like a rulemaking committee created that's an industry government partnership. Others would like the, have suggested that the TSA publish what's called an advance notice of proposed rulemaking, which results in kind of the same output. You wind up with a lot of meetings with uh, the stakeholders, as the government people like to put it, and they entertain a lot of ideas that then get distilled and boiled and stirred and put into an NPRM usually a year or two later. I've seen this movie. I've I've seen this movie. I've had a, a role in this movie. Me too. Um, and and uh, what needs to happen, and I think what will happen, uh, it may not happen soon enough um, to save the LASP rule from becoming final. But what will happen, I think, is is the Obama administration is going to take a top down look at Homeland Security, starting with the Department of, I mean, take a top-down look at the Department of Homeland Security, starting with its name, and continue down through TSA. Yes. And uh, um, they're they're going to do some revamping, they're going to do some reshuffling uh, of the deck chairs there. Um, when all this will occur, who will engineer it, uh, what the outcome will be, well, is anybody's D- guess. DHS already hope. has its has its boss confirmed, and that's uh, right. They do. Janet Napolitano from uh, former right. uh, uh, governor of New Mexico, uh, New Mexico or Arizona. You know, kind of, she's in uh, New Mexico, I believe. Uh, she's a you know no nonsense type, and, and I don't think she's going to put up with a whole lot of crapola. Um, the, the same kind of crapola we've seen over the last six and a half years from that department. Yeah. So, I, I'm optimistic that. We'll see some real change in that department and in TSA. I'm not convinced we'll see it in the form of doing away with the LASP rule, or at least, um, let, let's put it another way. I think we'll see some form of some kind of a rule uh, come out because the politics are just still insurmountable uh, on this, and, unless and until... Uh, the Obama administration can genuinely change the dialogue here in this country about terrorism and about national security. Well, and, I'm, I'm encouraged by some of what's I, already happened there, this, too. But, but I'm, just, I'm just pessimistic from the standpoint that we've just swung this pendulum so far in the wrong direction um, that uh, it's going to be – the timing is, is, is too iffy for it to swing back in the other direction far enough for the LASP rule not to become law. Well, here's my prediction, and I'll I'll roll this because uh, I've been working on a piece for one of my clients that's had me way more into the federal area than I usually have to get. Uh, The uh, comment period for the large aircraft security program is up uh, in February. The comment is going to come, it's going to go, and then the rule is going to disappear into that rat hole. 
that is the Department of uh, uh, the Transportation Security Administration, and it's not going to emerge in anything near its current form. And by the time it's subject to the review of the Obama administration people, uh, Ms. Napolitano's people, and the Office of Management and Budgets people, it's going to have to be reissued as an entirely new NPRM with radically changed parameters sometime around the mid to late 2010 area. That's my mm -hmm. guess. Yeah, okay. That's that's as good a guess as anybody could come up with right now. I'm optimistic that that would be the case. I'm I'm just not convinced that the the political dialogue on these topics uh is going to change quickly enough for that to be a viable outcome. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Okay. No, I understand where you're coming from. Well, here we go. So I think it can be said very clean, very very uh, uh, plainly that uh, when it comes to moving quickly through any section of this podcast's agenda, we are really good airplane pilots. Uh, <laughs> I, was gonna, I thought he was going to say we're as good at and moving quickly the, through things as the federal government. Okay. And let that be a lesson to you. That's right. Shout outs. What do we got here? Uh, who wants to go first? Um, the, you each have your name associated with one of these. Uh, you go, you go, go first, first Jeff. Um, Bob Wood, who is chairman of the U.S. Sport Aviation Expo, um, had a, a nice little chat with him earlier in the week over in Sebring. I was over there on Wednesday. Uh, he, he's, he's done a very nice job um, with that expo, with that event. Um, I know a little bit. My father ran a similar expo uh, for a completely different industry many years ago, so I'm a little familiar with what all is involved in, in um uh, getting all the pieces to uh, um, turn around and, and fly in close formation with each other. Um, and uh, in a short period of time, uh, he and his team have done a really nice job bringing this Light Sport Expo to fruition and, and making it a, um, a viable entity in the, uh, in the firmament of aviation uh, a trade show uh, trade show so uh, hats off to Bob and, and his his team and uh, more power to you and I hope you have a great show I'm sure you all will that's great I've David. heard I've heard nothing but good things out of it so far and this is their yeah. fifth so way to go for this them this is their fifth quick shout out for all of you that are out there flying with 121.5 megahertz ELTs uh, satellite monitoring goes away on February 4 uh, February 1 I'm sorry February 1 uh, I'm not say I'm not telling you this or pitching this as a way to get you to buy a piece of equipment you don't want or can't afford, but it's worth thinking about the value of your life and your potential to be recovered versus the relatively small cost of an ELT in the 406 megahertz range, even without GPS position input. You're your odds of being detected and found in a short period of time are hugely higher because even on the initial sweep, the target area is uh, uh, exponentially smaller for searches to work. So that all ends in uh, on, on February 1. Uh, for those of you that aren't going to change, uh, I understand that some of the islands in the Caribbean are deciding to exempt themselves 
from the ICAO rule saying that the rest of the world is going to go to 406 megahertz ELT. So if you're an island flyer, uh, check on the details. But to some of the islands out there, you're going to still be able to go to after February 1. But I did a little work on a uh, research project uh, about the effectiveness of 406 PLBs a few years ago and found the re the results found that a lot of PLBs promised way more than they delivered. That's A. Second, mm -hmm. PLBs are not a permanent part of the aircraft installation and are not designed to function for you in the event that you're unconscious, if you can even find the bloody thing after it's bounced around all over the airplane. Uh, third and final <laughs> is it yeah, I know. They cost 1000 1200 uh 1500 even 2000 for the fanciest with GPS enabling. Relative to the overall cost of owning and flying most of the airplanes that most of us fly, relative to the value of your life as a wage earner for your family for the rest of your life, get real. And I'm done. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's great. And uh, and I want to give a shout out to uh, tell people about uh, an event that I just heard about the other day, but I'm looking forward to it. And uh, I'm I'm probably going to drive up, not fly out. But uh, my my uh, new home airport, Sanford Regional Airport in Sanford, Maine, will be hosting. Uh, let's see, this is on Saturday, February 14th. So that makes it uh, three weeks from the day that we're recording this episode, which means it'll be Valentine's probably day. about like the day after I finally get this on the internet and. Uh, that was a joke. Oh, man, we're going to get a lot of beers out of this one. <laughs> no, no. Three weeks from today, that's uh, uh, Saturday, February 14th, or Sunday the 15th, if the weather is bad, uh, Sanford Regional Airport will be hosting the uh, Ski Inn and Winter Carnival. Uh, it's going to be, uh, the, apparently, it's their annual uh, ski plane fly-in, and that should be a lot of fun. They actually have, uh, in addition to their paved runways, they have a sort of makeshift grass runway that's along the edge of one of the uh, uh, paved runways that they use throughout the year and i would imagine that's the area that's going to be groomed to be a uh, ski plane uh, landing strip but wherever it is on the field uh, that's going to be a lot of fun uh, and i'm going to go up and check it out and anybody else who's in the area uh, ought to do so as well uh, either fly your ski plane in or fly your your regular geared airplane in and land on the paved runways um, it should be a lot of fun it's uh, there's a breakfast that starts at 7:30 in the morning in the southern main aviation hangar and there will be activities throughout the day uh, and so uh, Check it out at uh, southernmainaviation.com. That's Saturday, February 14th. And real quick, congratulations to EAA on their new Experimenter newsletter. And you can find out information about subscribing to the Experimenter. It's a replacement for what used to be a monthly magazine that they did. Uh, check it out at EAA.org. Uh, way to go. It's a lot of work to put together something like this. Yes, it is. Online. That's right. Yes, it is. That's right. Well, as always, it's a blast to get together, guys. I appreciate it. Uh, Jeff Same Burnside, here. you are uh, a serving, of course, as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. And where can people find you on the net these days? AviationSafetyMagazine.com. Um... I also have a new video up uh, on uh, avweb.com this oh, week. Oh, man, I'm telling you. Some, uh, yeah, there's I, a, just I, something video killed the video star. I don't know. Radio, yeah, video I'm killed the magazine get, star. Something like that, I'm, right? I'm yeah. going to go something get popcorn like and watch that puppy. <laughs> well, don't, you, won't, you won't need much. And, and uh, um, you know, is I'm this not the, responsible is, for any six sack. Is this like, like the last occur. one where your nose was featured in it? Or is there more of you in it this time? Oh, no, no, no. no He's had one since where he was the star. Oh, really? 
Oh, well, yeah, see, I'm sorry. You missed sorry. out on that, man. I'm, I'm just in denial about the whole thing. I'll check yeah. it out. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I think that's the correct response, actually. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer, a senior editor for Kit Planes Magazine, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where can people find you on the Internet? Oh, avbuyer.com or aea.net or just... You know, Google me and, and, you know, like throwing darts at the donkey's butt. Take potluck. There you go. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. Uh, you can find out more about me at uh, jackhodgson.com or aroundthefield.net. As always, a big thanks to Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Also to our many listeners, and particularly to Mike Morgan and Royce Earl for our show opening disclaimer clips. And don't forget that you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, you can view the forums, you can check out the wiki, you can look at the airport restaurants list. They've actually now, all on their own, the listeners on the forums hey, area. we got a new category about uh, you know trivia questions and AVA regulations. There's that, uh, and there's also the uh, airplane movies list. So there's a lot of cool uh, aviation information on the UCAP uh, uh, website, and you can check that out at uncontrolledairspace.com. So, David, what were you going to say it's going to say if you want to live longer go flying because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan so that's, long. that's right hey so that's enough talking for this week let's go flying it's not just a river in egypt the plane did not sink it lay on the river and all aboard were safely delivered. It could have been tragic, but no deaths occurred. Thanks to Chesley B. Sullen, Burger the Third. The next time you fly, look in the cockpit where the captain and first officer sit, ready to take you up and onward like Chesley B. Sullen. Burger the third take you across the country for miles with officers like Jeffrey Skiles and attendants who in crisis won't fail Donna Dent, Doreen Welsh and Sheila Dale Hope they're all warm at last after their adventure in the Hudson River. <laughs>